Legislation is my favorite part of my job. Yeah. Uh, this is hands down the part that gives me the most satisfaction. It has a lot of impact. It has, you know, I, I love adopting the one cat and the one rabbit and seeing the one dog go home with the family. But when you work on legislation, that law affects every animal in the state. And those big policy, those broad policy sweeps are really the part where you get the most impact. From the studios of Kink Radio, it's the Portland 50, a podcast series about the people who dreamt, built, and championed the innovation, growth, and uniqueness of Portland. The Portland 50 series is brought to you by Jaguar Land Rover Portland. One company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950. I'm your host, Peggy LaPointe. Today, I talk with Sharon Harmon, Chief Executive Officer at the Oregon Humane Society. OHS is the largest humane society in the Northwest, and they're celebrating their 150th anniversary this year. It's pretty remarkable to think that Portland was stump town, yet we created an institution that survives today. And today, this year, the Oregon Humane Society is going to turn 150 years old. I saw that. Uh, and I think that's really a testament to our values as a society and as individuals that we would create not only the Oregon Humane Society, but Reed College and the First Unitarian Church, all are Thomas Lamb Elliott's projects. I didn't know that. Yeah, That's he's fantastic. an amazing man. Yeah, he's very much a humanitarian. Uh, and I mean, you talked <clears throat> about it's still around. Well, the Oregon Humane Society is thriving. Yes. So it's not just around for 150 years. It takes a lot of hard work. To it's not only thriving, it's a very dynamic organization. And yes, as challenges come up, OHS says, flex to meet the current need with an eye to future needs. And I think that's what makes OHS the institution it is today to be recognized across the country for innovation and for accomplishment and the success we enjoy in this community is not only because of the leadership we have, but really it's a reflection of our values. Well, and I, I think we're probably going to jump around because you brought up a good point about the reputation that the Oregon <clears throat> Humane Society has. You have a number of different areas that are quite interested and quite dynamic. You have the um, investigative arm of the Oregon Humane Society that, from what I understand, deals with a thousand animal abuse cases a year. And that's around the state, correct? Or is yeah. it throughout yes. the Pacific Northwest? We have statewide authority as a law enforcement agency to enforce the cruelty laws. Uh, of the state of Oregon. And that's really unusual. Few states have bestowed upon a private agency police powers. Right. Uh, that's a testament of trust. It's a testament to us un, you know, knowing where the boundaries are, but also the need. And mm -hmm. really, there isn't a law enforcement agency in the state that's dedicated to animal welfare crimes. We don't enforce ordinances like barking dogs or running at large. Uh, but we do enforce the state's cruelty laws, which are, depending on who's ranking you, either the toughest or second toughest <laughs> in the country. So being able to enforce the laws, also being able to lobby for stronger laws, it's, it's an integrated system to make sure that we protect those who don't have a voice. Yeah. And these are peace officers that are sanctioned as such by the governor. 
Well, in uh, we actually improved upon that oh. for a long time. The governor deputized us as the governor can to yeah. deputize to enforce the laws of, of the state. But a few years ago, we moved the commissioning authority to Oregon State Police. Oh. So the superintendent of OSP makes sure that we are in good standing, our officers are qualified, and then we are commissioned. We're not under Oregon State Police, but our authority comes through the superintendent. And then as an independent recognized law enforcement agency, we supervise, hire, and fire, and manage our own cases. But interestingly, even though our power comes from the state, we're not funded by the state. Mm. All of our activities are funded by donations to the Oregon Humane Society. Because you're completely nonprofit. Completely nonprofit. And, no state money. And very, very open about where the finances come from, where you're spending it. You've got a page on your website where it, you know, you're very upfront with um, where the money comes from and where it goes. Uh, yeah, and very fiscally responsible. We're completely transparent, and that is a core value of the Oregon Humane Society. You can find everything on our website, including not only our tax returns, but our audited financial statements. There's all kinds of interesting information (laughs) that you would learn from those financial statements that you wouldn't get from a magazine or you Mm. wouldn't get from publicity, because in order for you to trust us, you have to know us. Right. And I think that's why the Oregon Humane Society is trusted. Um, because you are transparent and forthcoming. And I adopted our dog. through. Did the you really? Yes, Buck. <laughs> We've had him for eight years. Uh, and what kind of dog is Buck? He's a lab shepherd something else mix. Um, Sounds like a great dog. He is. And uh, we'll, like I said, this conversation is going to go all over the place. When we went to go adopt him, there, were, there was a litter of six. Four of them were available. And my son, my younger son, uh, was in a cast. So what I loved is being able to go in those rooms and one at a time the puppies came in yeah. and the first three were skittish and Buck came right up to Andrew and it was love at first sight. For Not deterred by the cast at all. No, no. <laughs> and we're like, okay, this is it. Buck's the one. Um, but I love that you could go in there and get to know the dog and, and have some time one-on-one without, the, you know, without other things distracting either the animal or us. So it was really wonderful. But... I digress. Um. <laughs> you know, we, we, you know, we recognize you're choosing a family member for the yeah. next 15 or 18 or 20 years. Yeah. And it's got to be the right match because it really is about love. It really is about chemistry. It's, yeah. it's not a pet. It's a family member. It's a family member. Uh, the other element of the Oregon Humane Society that I find interesting, intriguing, and wonderful are these... Moments when you have a couple of team members, a couple of volunteers who go to natural disasters around the country, Mm -hmm. like with Hurricane Harvey in Texas. You sent a crew there to help out when, you know, the last thing maybe on folks' minds were, what are we doing with all these animals? Because they were just trying to survive. Well, if you're the Houston SBCA, the first thing on your mind is, what are we going to do with all of these animals? And not only, what are we going to do with the animals that are displaced? But their employees were also victims of that disaster. Uh, And it may seem odd that the Portland, you know, Oregon, Oregon Humane Society is going to be responding to 17 deployments last year. But it's great training. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have skills in setting up, managing, and tearing down uh, emergency animal shelters that are really unique. 
And 17 deployments gave our team great experience. Just this week, we, uh, we were looking at being at request to respond to Kauai for the flooding right. uh, and to a major cockfighting bust in another state. So it isn't just dogs and cats that we mm-hmm. take care of, but really it's great experience. And some of it's uh, volunteers, some of it are employees, and you know they're, they're indiscernible in our organization. Right. Our culture embraces everyone who gives time and effort. Well, and they were there doing the work that, you know, was needed. They're cleaning kennels. They're, you know, helping, like you said, to build temporary uh, shelters for the animals. And the folks at, you know, in Texas, like you said, had other, unfortunately, things to worry about. They trying to do their job and trying to survive. So it was nice to have, I'm sure, helping hands. Do do other humane societies around the country go and uh, send volunteers as often and as uh, much as Oregon Humane Society? There's a, a, a few organizations that we're really sister shelters with, and I would say the San Diego Humane Society is one of those agencies. So when the hurricane hit Houston, the Houston SBCA reached out to the Oregon Humane Society and the San Diego Humane Society mm-hmm. because our teams are experienced. We work well together. We re- require little training or direction, and you could turn over the shelter to us to, to take care of. So uh, I think the more advanced organizations, and I think the organizations who have certainly more staff mm-hmm. and more resources that could spare a few people. But we train for this. We train through our uh, technical animal rescue group. We train every month to be prepared for what's going to happen next. Because if you look at it, there's no better training than on the ground, but when that Cascadia earthquake happens, if Mount Hood blows, if there's something major that happens, it could be a tire fire mm-hmm, in, right. uh, <laughs> in right. East Portland. Uh, we're ready. Yeah. And you have been at the facility uh, on Columbia Boulevard. Uh, this was surprising as well since 1918 when they bought the property. For a number of years, the Oregon Humane Society was not a sheltered organization. We were founded on animal cruelty, and that cruelty really centered around livestock. Mm -hmm. Companion animals, dogs and cats weren't really part of our life or society at that time. Uh, But livestock very much was. They were the animals uh, for transportation. They were food. They were fiber. And most of our work centered around inspection and protection of livestock. And until we, until we acquired the property on Columbia Boulevard in 1918, we weren't focused on housing animals and rehoming animals. Mm-hmm. And then when you came to the organization... Which uh, was a lot later than 1918. <laughs> was, yes. Sorry, that was not a good, that was not a good segue. I just want to make that clear. <laughs> True. It was much, 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 much later, later than 1918. Uh, it was at least it was it was at least eighty or seventy years later when you came to the organization, nineteen eighty nine, as operations director. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was good. Um, at that time, the Oregon Humane Society had a twenty six percent adoption rate. Now you're coming in as operations director. Was that one of your immediate focuses uh, within the organization? 1989 was really a tough year for the Oregon Humane Societies. And, and nonprofits have 
good times and bad times, but that was the worst time in mm. our history. There had been a scandal, and our results and our impact was just at a record low, and there was no cohesion across the organization. And in order for change to happen, a lot of people had to leave. Mm-hmm. So the uh, OHS closed for two weeks, brought in a consultant, and then I was hired as really a change agent to bring up our programs to modern standards, certainly focus on sending more animals out the front door than the back door. And to do that, I was given tremendous latitude. Mm. And that's really part of what makes OHS a success today is that we're going to give our folks the ability to make good decisions and the tools to make the right choices. From what I understand, the adoption regulations are pretty restrictive at the time. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Neither You or I would never get a pet in 1989 because it was a three-day mandatory cooling-off period. It was where you had to prove that you're a good pet owner. We had to go do inspector premises. We had to call your veterinarian. We had to call your landlord. And and instead of treating people like the heroes they are to come into northeast Portland and walk into our shelter and endure a facility that was really quite an affront to your senses in <laughs> so many ways. Uh, and, you know, and I think that that was really one of the biggest turning points for us was treating people like heroes right? instead of like the enemy. Right. Now, we all know that human beings are capable of extraordinary cruelty. But those are the minority, Mm -hmm. and they're not the people who are coming in the front door and raising their hand and say, I want to help. Now, you know, one of the archaic policies that we used to have, along with every other humane society in the country, was no black animals could be adopted over Halloween. And the reason why was that they could be used for some sort of satanic ritual. And so there's a moratorium. So one of the things we did was we flipped it, and we said, guess what? If it's black and orange, it's half off. <laughs> and, and I told the staff is that, is, you know, if someone comes in with a pointy hat and a steaming cauldron, you can say no. <laughs> right. But after that, <laughs> to show you this thing that came across my desk last night, they're looking at a dog for adoption in Idaho. And on their webpage, it says, our director is old school and she will want to meet you in person. And if you send an email, you will be disqualified. Wow. And so, what we're doing may be, you know, common sense, but it's still an uncommon practice. The other side of it, uh, the example you just gave is not welcoming. It's not. Well, you know, and I can understand because our staff do get to see the slice of society that, you know, most folks don't have visibility to. I mean, yesterday it's a domestic violence case where, a dog is stabbed, and you know, and the girlfriend brings it in because the guy stabbed the dog to get back at her. And so we do see things that most people don't. We see it up close and personal. We mm-hmm. see the pain and the fear in those animals' eyes, and sometimes we're only dealing with animals who have passed on. Right. Uh, but that is such a small, small minority of our interactions with people and then I, you know, personally, how I've managed to survive this long is that, you know, the people will walk in their front door and say, I would like to adopt your longest term oh. resident. And I was like, all right, yeah. I, I can come to work tomorrow with a smile on my face exactly. from that person. And you've got now a 98% adoption rate. 
Yeah, uh, yes. Uh, the Our adoption rate is really unparalleled. Yeah. Um, partly it's because we say yes until we have to say no. Right. Uh, part of it is that we have an outstanding medical facility that gets these animals ready uh, for adoption. And then we have a behavior rehabilitation center. Uh, and then it's really customer focused. We mm-hmm. want this to be a relationship that lasts the life of the pet, and how can we support you in that relationship? Mm-hmm. And I saw one number, it was in 2015, where it was six years with 11,000, over 11,000 do- adoptions in a year have uh, consecutively. Are we at the nine year consecutive rate for 11,000? That's a good question. (laughs) I can't believe I'm being stumped by a statistics question because I love numbers here. What I can tell you about achieving more than 11,000 adoptions a year is that is a really high volume of adoptions. Because on a Saturday, that may mean 60 or 80 pets are going home. Mm -hmm. Um, The challenge is, is that we've been so successful and our focus on pet overpopulation is that Portland long ago solved dog overpopulation. And we're just about to put the flag in the ground about cat overpopulation. Good. So that 11,000 adoptions, it's you okay. can expect to see that drop. It's and okay it is, if it goes down. And it's okay if yeah. it goes down, but it, it won't be because we're less successful. Right. It means that we have been incredibly successful yeah. in confronting the largest problem of our entire history. Yeah. You mentioned a while ago about the facility and how it was flavorful. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you had a new modern facility open in 2000, which had to have been just wonderful. I think my first day in the shelter in July 31st, 1989, oh I walked through. Now, I grew up in Portland. I went through the Oregon Humane Society and I was a kid. But coming in as an animal welfare professional, it's like, oh, my gosh, we need a new building. Yeah. But our reputation was so poor. Our programs did not the impact of our programs did not deserve the investment of the community that it would take to build the shelter that this community would aspire to. Mm-hmm. So we spent a few years building our programs, working on that adoption rate, making sure our animal health protocols were current and uh, effective. Uh, and then we started the campaign for mm-hmm. the shelter. And that was led by Ernie Swigert and Dolorosa Margulis. You're listening to Kink's Portland 50 series. I'll continue my conversation with Sharon Harmon in a moment, but I wanted to thank our sponsor. The Portland 50 series is presented by Jaguar Land Rover Portland. One company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950. Now back to my conversation with Sharon Harmon, Chief Executive Officer at the Oregon Humane Society. OHS is the largest humane society in the Northwest, and they're celebrating their 150th anniversary this year. Now I want to mention, so operations director in 1989, 1998 executive director, and that has been 30 years, which is fantastic. Yeah, I think this year I'll celebrate 20 as executive director, and I feel so privileged to have been able to hold that position to be able to exercise a vision Mm -hmm. and to be able to work with this community to meet the challenges 
the future in a way that makes sense and then sets the bar for the rest of the country. What have been some of the biggest challenges you faced in the 20 years as executive director? Um, I think culture. Mm-hmm. Culture is one of those, if you don't have culture, all your strategies for not. Culture within, your, uh, within the Oregon Humane Society or culture within the community? I think the Portland community has always been ahead of its times. Mm -hmm. When I was growing up, we did have access to affordable spay and neuter. Uh, We've always had good laws for animals, but I think that really what we needed to work on was our internal culture. Mm -hmm. Were staff and volunteers going to respect each other? Were we going to work shoulder to shoulder to solve problems? And then what's our relationship with the community? If you you put the hand up and say you're not welcome to adopters, there's no way that they're going to turn into donors. Mm -hmm. And and you've created that culture within your community. Uh, You walk in, uh, and it's been a a while since we've been uh, at the Humane Society, maybe since shortly after we adopted Buck. But from the volunteers to the staff, it was a wonderful experience. You felt appreciated. You felt, I want to say loved, but that's a strong word. But, you know, you, you very much felt welcoming. And it was, a, it was a wonderful experience. And I've heard that from others when I mentioned I was going to be um, talking to you. They're like, oh, I love the Humane Society, and it's so great there. So that's been a success. I mean, it's, it's work ongoing, I would imagine. You have new people coming in, volunteers and staff. But once you get that in place. Well, um, you, have to, you have to hire people that like people. Yeah. If you're just going to hire people with animal skills, they may not be the best, you know, customer service staff. Mm-hmm. So we can teach you the animal stuff. Right. But the, your natural interest in being kind and helpful to other people, that's just, that's what we have to target when we hire new employees. And that's, that's been really successful. But we also have to have a facility that welcomes you. Yeah. So when you come to the Oregon Humane Society, it does not look like an animal shelter. No. And we have to counter what is already in your mind, that it's going to be noisy and smelly and dark and sad. And there is no one who comes to our shelter that leaves with that impression. No, not at all. Besides your work within the Oregon Humane Society's walls, uh, you have done uh, a number of things with leaders within the state, working down in Salem on a number of issues. A couple of note, in 1995, a law that elevated animal abuse from a misdemeanor to a felony. Now, that had to have been huge. That was a significant accomplishment, and I have to thank Representative Tim Josie at the (laughs) time. He's a rural Democrat from Tillamook, and he seized upon the need to elevate. Because when you look at animal abuse, it's inextricably linked to human interpersonal violence. And it's just a different victim. Mm-hmm. And for Representative Josie to see that and run with it, I was really, really pleased. It wasn't an easy battle, right. but we made it happen. And since then, I mean, I think every year, we, every legislative session, we advance one or, or more um, new laws to protect animals. I think my best year was 14 new laws. Wow. And what were some of the laws? What year was that? Do you uh, remember? I, yeah, I don't know. What was it's like Senate Bill 6 has like 11 prov- provisions in it, and that exactly. was 2015. And right. 
And oh. that was one that uh, I noted as well. That was um, increased punishment for animal neglect and it expanded government oversight over animal rescue groups. Yeah, that was out of the case that happened in Brooks, Oregon with uh, Willamette Animal Rescue. Uh, we uh -huh. were called in to assist Marion County Sheriff in a warehouse that, where it was dis discovered 149 starved dogs I in that warehouse. That. Um, it was a rescue, and rescues today are still largely unregulated. Uh, we've been in talks of how to strengthen that provision of the law, but humane societies and rescues really have no state oversight that's mm -hmm. effective. <laughs> so that's still a huge problem. And now we see the rise of, you know, as an, as an impact of um, transport programs, we see animals coming up uh, from other states. Right. And that's a good thing. Gives more variety for the shelter population. It also provides pets for people. Uh, but animals, they're not cargo. They have to be vaccinated. They're coming from circumstances where they're already stressed and they could pick up illnesses and arrive without, with untreated injuries mm -hmm. or illnesses. It has to be done right. And in many cases, we see that the drive to get the animal out of the source shelter, uh, a number of precautions are not being taken to protect the animal's health and then the health of animals in our community. Uh, it'll be an interesting problem because even last year for the Oregon Humane Society, of those nearly 12,000 animals that we took into our care, over 7,000 came from other agencies. Wow. And in fact, OHS helped 92 other shelters with animals. And it's really unusual model. Usually the big urban shelter is overwhelmed, sends animals out to rescues and little agencies near and far, but for OHS, animals are coming to us. Often. Often, every yeah. day, and our focus is the Portland metro area. We work with the Animal Shelter Alliance of Portland, so Multnomah County, Washington County, Clackamas County Animal Services send us animals, but so do shelters in Nevada mm -hmm. and Southern California and Washington and Idaho, really 92 agencies. Oklahoma was one of our last big transports, Texas. Mm -hmm. Some of them are born out of disasters. Most of them are just born out of the disaster of unchecked pet overpopulation. It isn't just that we take in the surplus animals. We also leave them with critical supplies. Right. So our trucks never leave our shelter empty. Mm -hmm. uh, they take food and supplies and education and manuals and coaching and management. We're there to help those organizations do a better job because really our mission is not about adoption and our mission isn't about pet overpopulation. We were founded on animal cruelty and there is still much work to be done. And I'm really looking forward to the time where pet overpopulation is over right. within our reach. Do you think that having these laws on the book in Oregon is a key difference to what other states and what other organizations in other states are dealing with, with pet overpopulation and animal cruelty? Oh, absolutely. Oregon certainly sets the bar. We do a lot of consultations with other states. Here's model legislation. Here's how we got it passed. Here are the issues you might face. Here's our testimony. Mm. Please take it. Do what you can to get these laws passed in your community. But I think they also define our relationship and our responsibility to animals mm -hmm. because we, we look at them not on the same level as humans, but they deserve every bit the same protection. 
No animal should be mistreated, starved, abused, or neglected. Mm -hmm. And Oregon law takes a really strong stand on that. One of the things we did recently was we elevated in the sentencing matrix so that if you're committing a crime against one animal, it's one level, and that's 15-level sentencing matrix. But if you're committing a crime that involves more than 11 animals, then it jumps it up significantly. So the penalties rise, it goes from a misdemeanor to a felony, and that institutional neglect, institutional cruelty is treated entirely separately than one person's impact. Right. And I think that when we look at why Oregon has the strong laws is we really have values that exceed our relationship that that's an animal. These are companions, mm-hmm. and these are victims who can't speak for themselves. And I'm, I'm really proud of the Oregon legislature for taking big and bold steps to protect animals. Absolutely. What would you like to see? What other laws would you like to see on the books? That's a good question. Legislation is my favorite part of my job. Yeah. Uh, this is hands down the part that gives me the most satisfaction. It has a lot of impact. It has, you know... Uh, I love adopting the one cat and the one rabbit and seeing the one dog go home with the family. But when you work on legislation, that law affects every animal in the state. Mm -hmm. And those big policy, those broad policy sweeps are really the part where you get the most impact. You know, I think that one of the things that we still struggle with is that some of um, neglect cases, even where the animal... Uh, is severely injured or it's it dies as a result of their conditions. It's still a misdemeanor, and then the courts don't always treat them with the same severity as a child neglect case. Mm-hmm. And you're, you know you're probably thinking, well, pets aren't kids, but they are the victims of the same people. It's a vulnerable population. It is, and it's just, does the victim have two legs or four legs? The behavior is the same, and the perpetrator is is identical. Well, and many studies show someone is abusing an animal, they are very likely to go on to abuse a human. And they don't see the boundary of a human or animal. They see a vulnerable creature. It's unfortunate, but if you can help protect animals, you're helping to protect humans as well. It's one of the things that we teach the fourth-year veterinary students that come through our program. We have a partnership with Oregon State University. All fourth-year students come through a course at the Oregon Humane Society, a three-week course. It was the first of its kind in in the country, and now it's taught in most veterinary schools, this model. Uh, It's a really terrific program. But one of the things we teach veterinary students, if you're looking at an injury that doesn't add up, a kitten with a broken leg. Kittens bounce. They don't, they don't break legs falling down the stairs. Look at the kids. Look mm-hmm. at the wife. Does she have a black eye? Are the kids looking disconnected? Do they have bruises? You know, look at the totality of the impact on the family as opposed to focusing on the animal victim. Ask the questions and then connect with us connect with social services. I mean, we really view our work as interdisciplinary. It's not just we're looking out for the animals. We're going to pull aging services in. We're going to pull child protective services in. We're going to make sure that the woman who looks like she's been treated as poorly as the animals gets is aware of the help that she can make herself available to. Mm-hmm. Um, 
because really when we want to stop cruelty, we have to stop cruelty as a society, not as an animal welfare agency. Yeah. We talked about, you know, what you'd like to see in the legislature. You've done a lot of work at OHS. What other things would you like to accomplish there? I'm really excited about seeing the end of pet overpopulation so we can refocus our efforts on animal cruelty. More and more, we serve as a resource for other agencies. Last year, nearly 200 agencies asked us for assistance with animal crimes. That could be a case review. That could be a necropsy. That could be, please help us come in and actually do conduct a search warrant. Uh, And that's really where we can lend the expertise. But the Oregon Humane Society is not set up to do it all, but we are very well set up Mm -hmm. to teach others how to do it. So I think building that army of advocacy across the state, and I don't mean advocacy as people with picket signs. I mean (laughs) advocates in the court. I mean advocacy on the police force so that we see it, we know who to call. You just, you know, I feel for rural law enforcement. They got one or two folks who are focused on this, and they drive by, and they're like, I can't possibly deal with those 100 dogs in Burns, Oregon. And now they know. They can call us. We might teach you how to fish, <laughs> but, but uh, we understand that these are these cases are big and thorny. And now we see that there's a whole profession, a specialty of law that is defending people who have been accused of animal abuse and neglect. And so our evidence has to be impeccable, has yeah. to be unassailable. You just can't show up in court and show them a picture of a skinny dog and never the jury say he's guilty. Right. You got, you've, these are human crimes. And really, um, when we look at animal, uh, animal cruelty where the pet is dead, it's no different than a homicide. Your victim can't speak. Mm-hmm. And how are we going to present the evidence that gets um, justice for that animal? Right. So really, I think refocusing on where we started 150 years ago. It's about cruelty. It's about justice. It's about helping people who who need it the most. You know, in Portland, our housing situation drives a tremendous amount of poverty. Mm-hmm. You know, folks can't get to the veterinarian, and when they get to the veterinarian, they can't afford the care. And just yesterday, we had a cat dropped off at our doorstep with a note that says, I, I can't afford to take him to the vet. Would you care for him? And unfortunately, that cat had died by the time we opened up the box. And we we can do better as a society. And when you look at it, less than 20% of cats will ever see a veterinarian in their lifetime. Less than half of our dogs will ever see a veterinarian. Um, vets provide tremendous care, and veterinary science has really gone so far to be parallel to human medicine. And we think all animals deserve that. Yeah, absolutely. Not just yours and mine. Buck and Mac, they're going to get their care. <laughs> my, my dog goes to the vet today for a skin issue. My oh. cat was in the vet yesterday. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think animal cruelty will be the interesting focus. And you're seeing the Oregon Humane Society pivot now away from that pro-adoption focus. Mm-hmm. We retired into petlessness as a brand. Mm. Um, it was an incredibly successful campaign. Yeah. It's fun. Absolutely. Uh, really turned. People was like, yeah, I want to end petless, petlessness. Um, but it's a pro-adoption message. Yeah. 
And when you have a line out your door to get a pet three days a week, which is our current circumstance, wow. uh, we know that we need to, to work on different issues. And that's where a more humane society is the brand for the future mm-hmm. of the Oregon Humane Society. Well, uh, 150 years of trying to prevent animal cruelty. I mean, that's a pretty good track record. And there's still so much work to be I know. As soon done. as I said that, I was like, oh, shoot. <laughs> I, I think we'll get there. You know, we, yeah. we have great laws. Yeah. We have dedicated law enforcement. Oregon has a special prosecutor for animal crimes. Jake Caymans is a really talented prosecutor, and he works out of the Benton County DA's office. And that's his focus. Wow. You know, and it's great to have a, you know, be like having a prosecutor focus on organized crime mm-hmm. or homicide. You know, Jake is just talented with animal crimes. And that's what the state needs. Yeah. If we're going to solve these problems because animal crimes, they're going to, in a busy prosecutor's office, in a rural community, those are going to drift to the bottom of the stack yeah. because they have bigger issues and not enough resources. But it's great that the state has invested in a prosecutor just to do it. And Jake works in all 36 counties. That's great. I want to pivot and end on uh, this little nugget. It is Rose Festival time. Oh, my God. (laughs) Rose Festival. (laughs) And I love it. Uh, Rose Festival has chosen the Oregon Humane Society as the official charity. And there's going to be a canine grand marshal. I don't. And there's going to be a canine court. I love it. (laughs) I thought, oh, I should nominate Buck. No, I probably shouldn't. What? Uh, Why would you not? We want every dog to be nominated. But that is, I saw that. I was like, oh, that is so sweet. We're really, really blessed to have the Rose Festival pick us as the charity of choice. And I think Portlanders are going to have a lot of fun with the Rose Festival. Oh, my gosh, they will. I can't wait to see what the float looks like. But the canine court, your dog could be wearing that crown. That's true. I think for this year, as we celebrate our 150th year, uh, there are nearly 170 events around the 150th. And it will be be capped by an event at the Oregon Historical Society in November. Mm-hmm. We have an exhibit that runs for three months about our history. Uh, by then, we'll have a book published about our history. So lots of ways to re- reconnect with what this community started 150 years ago. November 17th. November 17th. <laughs> that's my yes. son's birthday. That's, how, oh, that's why it's it stuck really? in my mind. Yeah. Don't tell me you named him Thomas Wham <laughs> No, <Elliot>. I didn't. <laughs> Wouldn't have that. Wouldn't that have been something, though? Thank you so much for coming in today, Sharon. I appreciate it. You're welcome, and thank you. This has really been an honor to be chosen. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for joining me for my conversation with Sharon Harmon. If you've missed any of the previous podcasts, you can find them at our website at kink.fm. Be sure to like and subscribe to the Portland 50 podcast wherever you're listening. The Portland 50 is a podcast series celebrating Kink's 50th anniversary, and it's about the people who dreamt, built, and championed the innovation, growth, and uniqueness of Portland. The series is presented by Jaguar Land Rover Portland, one company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950.